Yesterday was Remembrance Day, in which our nation acknowledges the high cost of freedom and honors those who fought and died in these wars that we have been a part of. We as a people recognize the tragedy of death and suffering, not only for the soldiers in the field of battle, but also for the loss of life of those who are innocent, the displacement of those seeking safety and shelter in the midst of these conflicts. And this historical remembrance is brought into even sharper focus for us as we recognize the effects of war and conflicts between peoples here in the makeup of our own community today, especially in the faces of those who have found a new home here in Canada and in Fort Garry, those from a Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iran, and many other nations where they have experienced conflict and oppression in their homelands. In the midst of this reality, we as a people of faith must ask, what does this church, what does this community shaped by the cross of Jesus have to offer in response? Certainly, we believe that the followers of Jesus are called to be peacemakers in all aspects of our life and witness. We're a people that are defined by the self-sacrificing love of God and willing take, to take on suffering for the sake of others. As a people united and formed through the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is essential to the life of the church that this same commitment to peacemaking be evident in our life within the faith community as well. Our integrity as a people who proclaim peace, as a people who say there is a way of hope, there is a way of true life and reconciliation. We must live in this way as a model and example of what we speak of. The Christian church is marked by divisions over doctrine and ethics, morality and theology, sometimes even over personality. And it seems that we are far more likely to divide and exclude than to hold steadfastly to our unity amidst the differences within the body of Christ. So often we turn to exclusion and separation. And the question that I'm left with so often is when our when our common practice, when our go-to method of dealing with difference is exclusion, then how far do we go? How small do those differences need to be? And who is left at the end? 
We have been walking together through this series on the cross-shaped community, turning to the word of scripture and the living word who is Jesus, the one who unites us and has brought us together. As we read in Ephesians, he has brought down the dividing wall of hostility between us and made us one people. It's a unity given to us as a gift of God Our calling is to maintain the unity of the people of God, not to somehow create a unity of the people of God. And so we are left, though, with how we live this out day to day. What are we to do here as this congregation at Fort Gary, as a denomination of Mennonite brethren, as Mennonite Anabaptists in a world of many different faith traditions. How do we come to our convictions and to our beliefs and how do we discern together what is good and right and true? How do we discern together? Well, clearly when we discern, we are appealing to those things which we recognize as being true and sources of truth and authority in our lives. One of the things that we have seen happen more and more over the last number of decades and is becoming ever more prevalent not only within the church and not only within the North American society but as a global phenomenon is that there has been a shift in what is called the locus of authority or where we find authority in our lives. Sam Reimer, who is a professor at Crandall University, has done a study particularly of the church in the last little while in which he sees and is explaining how what people derive authority from has shifted dramatically in the last couple generations. The locus of authority has moved from an external authority to an internal one, where the arbiter of truth and what ought to be or not to be, what is good and right and true, comes from within my own heart. Yet as a people of the word, A people of the word of God, the living word who is Jesus who comes and dwells among us and enacts and teaches us through the power of the spirit within us individually and as a body, we recognize that an internal appeal to authority can only take us so far. Our vision is limited. Our hearts are fickle. And we change, and we change, and we change. The people of God who are shaped by the cross of Jesus are a people of the word. To discern truth and conviction, we read the scriptures together. We listen to the words of scripture together. We fix our eyes on Jesus who is the word. And together we discern what the word has to say for us in our context, 
in this time and this place and in this community that we call home. One of the things that we recognize that happens is that depending upon our location within the world we inhabit, depending on the experiences that we have been a part of in our lives, it changes the way in which we hear the word. It changes our perspective on what the scriptures are saying. For those who've experienced suffering, when you hear words of hope and answers to suffering in the scriptures, it resonates in a different way. For those who have felt betrayed, bullied, or excluded by the faith community, when they hear words like authority, it sounds different. Our experience changes the way we read and the way that we discern. We as the people of the word have a commitment that when we read scripture, when we turn to this source of authority in our lives, it is always done through the lens of the person of Jesus. It is Jesus that interprets the scriptures for us. One of the things that you will have seen in the text that we read this morning is that there is a shift from an Old Testament understanding of what is the greatest commandment to what Paul says in Galatians is the heart of the word of God, the greatest commandment. Jesus quotes the Old Testament in saying, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you have. And then he says, and the second greatest commandment, which is like the first. I want to pause there for a second. When he says it's like the first, what do you think he means? The second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. What does he mean when he says it's like the first? Is it just because it includes the word love? Or is there something deeper? You have the prophet Hosea that we read from this morning who speaks to the discipline that God has enacted among the community of Israel that turned away and calls them back. And he says, what I desired from you was not for you to bring me animal sacrifices and do all the rituals and all the correct things. What I want from you is to be in relationship with you. I want you to know me. I want to walk with you. And if your rules and your rituals are getting in the way of that, then that's a problem. Paul says to the community in Galatians, when we love one another, we fulfill the whole intent of the law. In Acts 11 and Acts 15, we find a description of the early church wrestling with questions of difference and doctrine. This inclusion of the Gentiles, those who have been 
outside of the Jewish people who are now coming and recognizing Jesus as not only Messiah, but as Lord of all creation and the world and their lives as well. And there is profound disagreement as to what this is supposed to look like in practice among a primarily Jewish people. And in this, we find a pattern that Krebel, in the book that we've been studying, Stuck Together, suggests is one that we ought to pay attention to. That as the community comes together to wrestle with this dramatic, drastic change in understanding, they examine their experience what God is up to, what God is doing, how the Holy Spirit has been at work among this Gentile people. And they tell the stories of what God is saying and doing and accomplishing through this dramatic shift. Then they discern together and confirm together what God has done and is doing. This process of discernment that we as the church do today is like the church in Acts 15. We discern grounded and rooted in the scriptures, the word of God. In Acts chapter 15, we find references to relevant texts from the prophets, from a Jeremiah and Amos and Isaiah as they turn to the word that they have been given to help understand the context that they are in. And yes, there is conflict. Crable says that conflict is simply one of the faces of discernment in a community context. When there is difference, there is tension. It's how we deal with those tensions and process that conflict that reflects whether Jesus is at the center of what we're doing or whether he has been set to the side in favor of our preferred way forward. Crable names a number of steps that he sees in Acts 15 that he says are relevant for the church today in dealing with difference and conflict. He says, first, we must name the tension. We must name it. We cannot ignore it. And then we must create space for dialogue and conversation we invite the participation of all into this conversation. And he says this conversation must have adequate time and opportunity. When you read the text of Acts 15, it says, and there was much debate. Those are a few short words that say this took a long time because there was a lot that had to be said. There was a lot that needed to be worked through together. And they didn't move forward until everyone had had a chance. And it said, everyone had a chance to speak. Then there must be a proposal for where do we go from here and a discernment as the body together by consensus and spiritual attentiveness. This is what Crable highlights in Acts 15. I invite you to spend some time in that chapter as you consider how we as a church might process some of the big 
questions we have in front of us, both internally and as a denomination. Crable, in response to this process, says that we are wise not to condemn other Christians and faith community who undertake careful discernment processes and end up with contrasting conclusions as to how to proceed. The question is, was the process faithful? You and I today have the benefit of 2,000 years of discernment in the church experience, both good and bad. We often refer to how we read and understand scripture and discern as a three-legged stool of discernment. A three-legged stool, for those of you who come from an agricultural milking background when you still did that by hand, a three-legged stool is far more stable than any other because it deals with the uneven ground that it sits on. Any of you who have had a table with four legs that are not quite the same length will recognize just how hard it is to get that thing to sit straight, right? He says the three legs of this stool of discernment are tradition, that which we have received from the church and our experience as the church together, the scriptures of Jesus Christ, that we have received the word of God and the experience that we have understood and walked through. John Wesley added to that three-legged stool with a fourth uh, source of inquiry, which he calls reason. Because as Thessalonians says to us in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, that we are called to test everything and hold fast to what is good. How do you test and hold fast to things without using the reason and intellect that we have been given as these beautiful creations of God? We learn that tradition informs us but does not determine the discernment for the current context. And another thing that it's something that, that we must be really careful to remember is that conflict doesn't end simply because we've reached some sort of conclusion. It takes time for us to walk through these things. Even after in Acts 15, the church had decided, yes, the Gentiles could come in. We, see, we find in other places in the scriptures that Paul and Peter, who were two of the pillars of the church, they have some sharp disagreement about how that's supposed to happen. Unity was a struggle from the beginning of the early church, too. It's not just us. I don't know if that makes you feel better or not. Paul Ochtemeyer says this, he says, unless we are aware of the problems that the early church faced concerning its unity, we will inevitably romanticize that time period, assuming in a naive way that all it takes to recover that lost original unity is a little goodwill and some pleasant negotiations. It simply doesn't work like that. There is risk involved. It is hard work. It is holy work. And like Paul, we must be willing to take risks to reach across the divides that 
separate us. Crable reflects on a gathering in 2018 in Geneva, Switzerland that he participated in. It was an ecumenical gathering of Christians from very, very diverse backgrounds, Orthodox and Catholic and Evangelical and various shapes of Protestants and others. And at that gathering, Pope Francis addressed them and said this, for us as Christians... Walking together is not a ploy to strengthen our own positions, but an act of obedience. It's an act of obedience to the Lord and for the love of our world. Whenever we say, our Father, we feel an echo of being sons and daughters, but also of being sisters and brothers. To walk in unity is an act of obedience to our God. As part of the Mennonite Brethren denomination, we are part of a larger body called the Mennonite World Conference. The Anabaptist theological distinctives of bodies of believers from 58 different countries. And as they walked together over the last number of decades, they re realized they needed to articulate what it was that they shared. And so they took 34 different confessions of faith and statements of faith and belief and drew them together in a three-year process into something called the Shared Convictions They were left with seven statements which form the heart of our shared beliefs as Anabaptists. Practices, applications, theological distinctions are left for each cultural and denominational group to work out in their own context. But we walk together in our shared convictions. Cesar Garcia, who is the general secretary of the Mennonite World Conference, comes from Colombia, a nation which has seen decades of armed conflicts, and he speaks to the unifying effect of suffering on the body of Christ. He says this, when you are in peace and prosperity, you have time to discuss issues that separate Christians and be critical. But when persecution or natural disaster threatens your life, you have to rely on one another. If there's an army outside the house looking for you, you are going to pray with other Christians regardless of their specific doctrinal or ethical beliefs. Does that make sense? It's the context we find ourselves in. The work and example of our Anabaptist family in moving towards one another despite our many differences and faithfully discerned approaches to doctrinal and ethical application of the living word of Christ within our diverse context is a sign of hope. It's a sign of hope, not only for the believers and for us as churches, but it is also critical to our Christian witness in a broken world as we live as a cross-shaped community together. Amen.